You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. My guest for this episode, joining me at the Intersections, is filmmaker L. Michael Lee. He is founder of Devised Media, and he is the director of my documentary film, Open Wounds. Listen as we engage his journey as a filmmaker, the role of film in the conversation around social justice, and the making of Open Wounds. Lamond Lee, or I should say L. Michael Lee, director, um, filmmaker, writer, screenwriter, is joining us today. Thank you for, for being here, my brother. As Thank I you do, for having me, sir. Yes, sir. As I do with all my guests, uh, I want to give you the floor and share kind of a self-introduction. You, you tell us who you are, and then we'll go from there. I know you. I know who you are. I know you dirt. I know you. Now I'm just kidding. Um, but I want you to be able to just give us some context as to who, who you are. Who is L. Michael Lee? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, follower of Christ. Um, married uh, 15, almost 16 years. Same woman, four kids. Uh, we foster one of the four kids. My wife and I have three of our own. Um, two girls, two boys. Teenage girl. Um, then we got a bunch of toddlers destroying the house don't <laughs> don't don't let this fool you like i cleaned up um, before we got on this podcast but um love my love my family love my kids professionally um been in filmmaking gosh i graduated film school back in 2001 um been doing little projects here and there um, you know the hustle and bustle of hollywood it's it's very sporadic it's up and down so um, i had to establish myself um, in some way. So I went down the avenue of uh, information technology, been in information technology as well. Gosh, about, I want to say it's like 15, 16, maybe even 17 years now. Um, I currently uh, function as a systems engineer, which when you look at film directing, which is what I got my bachelor's in, and you also look at um, systems engineering, they're really closely related in terms of what they do what you do from that position, right? A director is very much so involved in the process from start to finish, from pre-production all the way to post-production. Um, same thing with systems engineering. Uh, you are involved in a process to where you basically pull in everybody together, you develop and, and then devise a strategy, and then you basically quarterback that thing, right? And getting everybody involved, um, getting everybody motivated, the same thing with the director. And so um, those two, those uh, that moving into that role kind of fit like a glove because it was something that I was used to. And actually it's, you know, keeping me sharp in that regard in, in my directing um, experience, because as I'm doing projects, you know, you got to learn how to communicate with people. You got to deal with different people. And so um, passion for filmmaking. IT is cool. You know, I love IT. Um, it's, it's always been something I've been interested in. As a kid, I used to take apart my, my game consoles, drive my parents crazy, you know, do stuff like that. I love technology. And so when you go on the filmmaking side, naturally, you know, from a directing and, and directing and, and storytelling standpoint, I always want to push the envelope in terms of technology. And so, uh, but that that's really my heart, uh, filmmaking, storytelling, expressing myself creatively, uh, primarily through visual means. And so, but in a nutshell, you know, 
I'd say, you know, I'm really about, you know, affecting the culture um, in a positive way. And I think that the creative means, whether it be music, art, film, those are the most powerful um, avenues that we could use to affect the hearts of a generation. So I've seen, and I mean, you know, a lot of people have listened to an album that changed their mind and that kind of shapes their personality or they watch the film or there's this particular artist um, that really embodied what they couldn't articulate themselves. And so uh, I think that, you know, art is a very much so um, centerpiece of my life. I'm always thinking it. If I'm not speaking it, I'm out. I'm seeing it and envisioning things. So that's who I am, man. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that, man. Uh, I, I got one. I got a couple of questions for you follow up to follow up that one's going to get you in trouble. Uh, so I'm, oh. I'm full disclosure. Uh, you said you're married to the same woman. Um, and you mentioned you referenced your wife. Is her name the same woman or wife? Is that her name? What was her name? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> What's um, her name, man? Give her a shout. My lovely wife. My lovely wife is Charlene Keith Lee. Um, that is my heart. That is my my road dog, that is my, um, my Bonnie. And, you know, we've been, we've been friends, you know, we've been together over tw like 20 years this year. Um, wow. This coming year, it'll be 20 years we've been together. Total, married 15. We met really young, man. We've been rolling thick as thieves. As soon as we met each other, it was just like instant, man. We were, we were, you know, we were the, the, the most appropriate thing for each other when yeah. we were young. And the beautiful thing, Phil, is as we've gotten over, because obviously I don't think like the 20 year old that I was, you know, I just turned 40 this year. So I don't think the, the same way that I thought, of course, she doesn't think like the 18 year old that she was then. But just over time, as we've matured and grown together, you know, one thing we never lost is, um, you know, is that that cohesiveness that camaraderie that we have we could talk to each other like, like friends even though we're husband and wife we could talk to each other like you know foes you know and still have that nucleus that no matter what she says or what i say we know that the center is, is always going to be the same man because you know a tip to people who haven't gotten married yet you know romance is a roller coaster exactly right? it's yeah. up and it's down it's up and it's down but friendship man that's forever and yeah. so um, that's why we've that's why we've been able to bend through all of the the obstacles and circumstances that we've been able we've been facing over the last 20 years. And so, um, yeah, she has a name and her name <laughs> is Charlene. I feel like like uh, Drew Hill um, walked by me every day. You remember that song? Anyway, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, so. you you more than made up for it with that with that segment right there. That I answer. better, man. She see this thing. <laughs> You punch me in the chest. No? Exactly. Um, you know, you said something interesting about com com comparing what you do in terms of systems engineering and, and, and being a director. You you saw or see how being in corporate America and doing what you do still keeps you sharp and helps you in in terms of being a director. Right. Yeah. In, in terms of skills mm -hmm. and, and, and leading a team. Most people would not see that. Most people are complaining because they're so passionate about one thing, they can't see how the other thing even can even help them 
and what they're passionate about. And so I appreciate the fact that you brought that up and you shared how you're, you're not compartmentalizing, but you're integrating and, and showing how they work together. Because I felt the same, I felt differently when I was a personal trainer wanting to build my personal training business. And, and then I got a job at Jenny Craig. This was 16, 17 years ago. Got a job at Jenny Craig and I hated it. I, I hated every day going to work. And then yeah. I finally started to build my personal training business and I realized Jenny Craig actually helped me build my business. Yeah. And then I got, I, I got the call to ministry full time and I started to see how Jenny Craig and being a trainer helped me as a pastor. Yeah. Like those seasons. And so I've learned over the years that not to compartmentalize and separate and just be complaining because you're not doing exactly what you're wanting to do but seeing how they either prepare you for the next season or what you're passionate about or how they actually, like you said, they, 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 they help you. They help keep you yeah, sharp. Absolutely. You know, absolutely, man. You hit it right on the nose. All things work together. You know, when you, when you walk with the Lord, you know, any season in your life, he will use it for your good. You know, whether it's a hurtful season, a painful season, whether you're suffering loss, whatever the case may be, um, it's all in perspective. Um, whatever perspective you walk in. And I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day um, talking about perspective. You know, if you have everything that you need to become what it is that you're supposed to become, but you have the wrong perspective, you're going to fail. Absolutely. Or you can have none of the things that you need to become who you are, but you have the right perspective and you will succeed. Absolutely. And so the mindset that we carry is paramount um and it's the pinnacle because it embodies the character it embodies the the, the mentality the, the the nerve to continue on when the challenges come because if you don't have the right perspective and the challenges are going to come even with all of the things that you need to your disposal you'll fumble that ball man and you won't get you won't get to that 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 goal line and so um i've learned because i used to be that way you know when i was a, a kid man in in film school, my mom would get really upset with me because I was working these temp jobs. Remember temp agencies, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. back in the day where they would send you one place one one day and the next week you'll be in another place. Bro, I was the type of person I would walk into a place at lunchtime, I won't come back because I was just so laser focused on what it is that I would do. <laughs> it drove my mom wild, right? Um, because in your college, you know, my mom's already paying for tuition my parents are already paying for tuition and they're like, well, you need money. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And they're like, boy, if you don't get back at this job, you know, but yeah, yeah I, I've learned over time, man, to just, you know, allow myself to be led and to take what I need to learn from wherever I'm at so that um, when I ultimately get to my destination, I'll have all of these assets and tools to my disposal. So that's how I look at it now. Wow. Wow. And so you had to have been laser focused um, to have this passion for filmmaking like you shared. And yet you took this detour or this turn, not so much a detour, but a turn to, to become a systems engineer or to work in that field. So I want you to unpack a little bit for us. How did you get into filmmaking? How did you become, 
passionate? Why did you become passionate about it? Was there like this moment where you realized, man, I'm, I'm pretty good at this? Or did you just love it? Did you just love or was intrigued with filmmaking and always wanted to do that? Well, you know, that's interesting, interesting question. Um, so as a as a kid, man, I, and I'm going to dial back to let's let's go back to 93, 94, um, 93, 94. That was a great year. That was a great year. Talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so back then, you know, I was big into big into music, big into filmmaking, um, really big Eric B and Rock Kim. Um, a lot of East Coast hip hop, very big uh, Public Enemy, um, EPMD, just just the the I felt like it was the quintessential time for hip hop, you know, like the the heart of hip hop was during that period of time. Uh, but also, what was happening on the silver screen is this man um, named Spike Lee, you know, who came from a place that I could understand. And he was telling stories about stuff that I could comprehend. Um, like, for instance, uh, do the right thing. I understood do the right thing. Um, with all the films that were going on during that period of time, you know, there's a lot of action films and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, the, you know, romantic comedies and, and just stuff that I just couldn't understand. You know, being a, being a boy from South Central, I couldn't understand it. And so... Spike Lee comes on the scene and he starts telling stories, showing faces that I can identify with, situations that I can understand, and in a way that um, spoke, you know, the visuals that he was putting in his film spoke more volumes than actually some of the dialogue that was in the films themselves. You know, the imagery that he was, he was showing, uh, it really in, inspired me. And so as a young boy, it started to it started to, um, you know, formulate a, a thought process in me in terms of how to articulate myself. Because in a lot of these films, not just, you know, Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, She's Gotta Have It, and, you know, um, Jungle Fever, and all of these different, all of these different films that are out there, um, you, could, you could identify with people, you know, from the position that you were in, because at that time, I had transitioned from the inner city of South Central to the suburbs in, you know, the San Fernando Valley back then. And it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of African-American people out there, you know, at least not on the west side of the valley. And so, you know, being called the N-word and, and having, you know, um, other pe people of other nationalities having a problem with me just because of who, what I was just naturally, um, it was a place that I could find safety in his work and in, in, in this art and this music that was out there. And so that really kind of it, you know, formulated my perspective when it came to filmmaking and my aunt and uh, a really close friend to our family, they had a business, a photography business, you know, and as a 14 year old, my aunt would allow me to come over her house and she had a bevy of cameras and lenses and she would just let me take them. So I would go out and this is back film, bro. This is, this isn't digital, right? Where you take a picture and then you get to look at what you took, right? No, you had to know the art of photography and then go and develop the film to see what you actually did. And so it, it allowed me to learn um, exposure. It allowed me to understand aperture, the, the technical side behind the camera, right? And then I started taking pictures 
of, of different things and family. And so about time I got to high school, you know, I'm in this um, television and film class as a senior and I played basketball my whole life. My thought was I was going to go to college to play basketball. You know, first semester of basketball, uh, first semester of my um, senior year, um, I had I had a uh, my, my teacher who was uh, over the he was actually the, uh, the the photography teacher. He was actually the film and television teacher as well. You know, after a semester, he was like, I know you're really good in basketball. I've, I've watched you play. Um, but he said, I have never. And he was like, in my 13 years at this school, seen somebody create something like this. It's like, I'm not trying to tell you, young man, what to do with your life, but I've watched you in every single project that I've put you in, lead the project, formulate a strategy and execute it better than anybody else in my 13 years here at this high school. And he said, basketball might be a good thing for you, but I think you could be great at this. And I really took what he said at, you know, to heart. And he doubled down by saying, look, I'm writing you a letter of recommendation to several film schools here in Los Angeles. Um, one of them was Los Angeles Film School, which I landed at. Um, but he said, take these letters. Um, and if you want to apply to these schools, you have my blessing. I've worked in the industry for 30 years. Um, a lot of the faculty and staff or whatever, um, they are very much so close friends of mine. And so when I applied to LA Film School, I, I got a, I mean, I got in there pretty quickly uh, because he sent my work um, and he spoke very highly of me. And I honestly never looked back since. So, uh, but that's really how I started off and, and how I got into filmmaking in general. That's awesome. That's an awesome story, man. I, I, I can appreciate the, the voice of the mentor, yeah. the teacher that sees something in you. And I think that's, that's underappreciated in our society. We, we, we foster a society that says, culture that says hustle grind work 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 we don't really talk a lot about relationships that guide right. steer when people see something in you that you don't see at least not yet and so i appreciate hearing that about your story now you mentioned spike lee and and do the right thing and that was going to be my next question. What, who influenced you the most? Is there anyone besides Spike Lee? Is it, or is it just Spike Lee? Because, you know, I, I love the way Spike Lee, John Singleton, I love the way they told our stories, um, the truth telling yeah. of our stories, like taking back the narrative, right? Um, yeah. Are there any other filmmakers? And if so, who are they? Are there any genres that are your favorite? I mean, you seem like yeah. a romantic comedy kind of guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. You got jokes. Okay. Um, but no, you, you hit it. Uh, or so early on, definitely Spike, you know, John Singleton, F. Gary Gray as well. Um, that was kind of like my, my teenage years and, you know, the start of, uh, you know, my young adulthood into my 20s um then i started to look more because i was now 
studied, if you will, in looking at the technicalities of filmmaking. Um, Ridley Scott is a really, uh, really excellent filmmaker. Um, Chris Nolan, very much so an excellent film uh, maker. And I'm talking about like the whole, like telling the whole story from a visual aspect. Now, current day, um, I'm really into a lot of the work that, uh, you know, some of the contemporaries like Ava DuVernay is doing. Uh, do, excellent, like she is a, kind of a Swiss army knife, right? She's a documentarist, but she's also, you know, um, she also does film like feature uh, productions and, and, and things of that nature. So it's kind of been, you know, a mashup of different influences now in terms of genres, if I had to say, um, it would be, hmm, that's, that's an interesting one because I don't necessarily lean to one genre or another. It's because of, because I'm about, you know, changing culture more than anything. I like documentaries. I like real stories, uh, but I love, like when I mentioned Ava DuVernay, she will tell a real story in a feature production. Right. So, you know, marrying those two things together where you take the truth of what really happened and then kind of romanticize it in a feature, you know, and, and compartmentalize it in such a way to where it's not it's not, you know, informative like a documentary would be, but yet it's entertaining, but also the truth about what happened. I think that marriage is excellent because not everybody likes documentaries. Right. Not everybody will sit and, and watch a, you know, a documentary, even though there's a plethora of brilliant documentaries out there. But most people, when they sit down and they turn the TV on, they just want to be entertained. Yeah. You know, they want to they want to, you know, relax from their work week or, or whatever the case may be. So I think marrying those two things together is would be best fit for this generation, because, you know, a lot of people just won't sit down and and do the research uh, or care about the details of a matter. And when you say marrying, say, a real story um, a, a with a feature or as a feature film, you're talking about something like uh, When They See Us. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a powerful film Absolutely. for sure. I think this would be a, a good place to transition. Um, let's take a 30,000 foot view about filmmaking. What is the role of films in your mind or, or the potential role that films can play? I think you alluded to it earlier. You mentioned something earlier. But film can be, we all know, it can be a powerful, powerful tool. Um, but not everyone uses every tool the right way or effectively. So what is your, in your mind, what is the role of films in our society? So if you think about any artistic expression, I think... Okay, so, you know, you have poetry, you have, you know, actual paintings, arts, um, you have music, and then you have motion pictures, right? Yeah. Nothing can trigger your emotions quite like filmmaking. Why is that? Because you are immersed in an experience to where you are, the reality that you're sitting in a chair, right? In a theater. Remember theaters? COVID got us all jacked up. Um, <laughs> I'm an introvert, so, you, so I, I love being at home. Netflix in it. Oh, well, 
I love theaters. Um, I think some some things have to be seen on that screen. But anyway, you can you can be suspended from reality in that place, knowing that this is all fictional, knowing that everything that you've seen was scripted, the lighting, the clothing, the decor, you know, everything was scripted. But because of the the reality of what your eyes are seeing, it shuts off a medium in your consciousness, right? That that makes you forget that this is scripted and you start to embrace what it is you're seeing. And it can reach your mind at a depth that maybe reading a book can't. It can reach your heart in a way that maybe a conversation can't. And so because you are witnessing a story, you know, and if, if the if the writer did a good job, that you can now not only sympathize with, um, that you can identify with, that you develop a sense of compassion, you can get angry, you can be fearful, you can be excited, your heart starts, all of these things happen through film. And it is, you know, I don't like to use the word magic, you know, Disney is like, they love using that, it's magical. and. Um, but there is some truth to what it can do to your mind and your heart uh, by just sitting and embracing, right? The, the, the definition of entertainment is detained to enter, right? And so you are allowing things to enter you, whatever it is that's being presented to you. So it is a very powerful tool. And like you alluded to, if you don't use it right, it can influence the wrong thing. Uh, but if you do it well and you use it responsibly, it can change a person's mind and a person's heart for the good. Yep, yep. No, I I, I agree. Um, fil- film for me, I think I mentioned this to you before we began this episode, um, is a prophetic tool. What has the potential to be a prophetic tool, yeah. especially today in our what we're dealing with in 2020. There are, there are necessary films out there. I think it's prophetic in the sense that it, it can disrupt the dominant narrative and offer an alternative narrative, a truth-telling narrative to counter the dominant narrative that really wants to keep things status quo, keep things like it right. is, and avoid injustices and things like that. But that, 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 that film done well with the right subject matter, the right filmmaker, can, can be an alternative narrative of truth-telling that says, wait a minute, there's right. another side to this story. Right. And so when you mention, when you mention about being captured, being sitting in front of a film screen, almost escaping, knowing that it's scripted, knowing that it's, uh, it's lights, it's makeup and all that stuff, you can still enter and just kind of escape and be engrossed in that. I agree 100% with you on that. My question would be, is it the storytelling or is it the visuals? Is it a combination of both? Like, can you not have one without the other and have this powerful film? Because when you talk about entertaining, you know, one definition I read about to entertain means to capture the mind, mm-hmm. which is similar, basically synonymous with what you shared about uh, to detain, to enter, but to capture mm-hmm. the mind. Um, is it the storytelling, the writing? Is it the, the visuals? Is it the soundtrack, the, the scoring part of it that can pull you in? Or are they so interdependent on each other 
that it's not one over the other, but it's all, all the above. Yeah, I look at filmmaking, man. It's like a good meal. Um, you know, if you if you burn the meat, but you do well with the sides, you know, people are gonna judge the meal. Like, what? This is, you know, the that asparagus was great, but that steak was terrible. You know, I, I think that it's all things. And, and the reason why I say that um, is because, you know, you start with the story. Like that is gonna be the foundation of everything before you even get to the visuals. Right, the stories give way to the cinematographer and the director on how to visually explain the story, right? And then it goes into the editing portion because how the story is, is shown is, is just as important. Then when you get into the music and the sound portion of it, that just puts the cherry on top, man. That's, that's literally the icing on the cake because as an editor, when you, and, and other filmmakers know this, when you watch a scene without the music, without the, without the audio and the, you know, and the sound design and, the, and the, the, the foley that comes with that, that particular scene, it just looks really dry, right? You know, a powerful scene can look like, oh, okay, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. But, but once you get a film score and you get a, a sound designer to put that on top of what you're visually seeing, because when you're watching a film, all of your senses are being engaged, right? With the exception of smell, um, but all of your senses are being engaged. So sound is a really big part of it. I've seen excellent films in terms of stories in the way they're visually, visually um, created with terrible scoring. And it's like, oh man, this music is just ruining this scene. And so they all are interwoven together uh, because you can have an excellent store um, with a so-so story, and it's like, ah, you know, the, you'll get, you know, the, the musicians will get credibility, but the film itself won't get the notoriety that it deserves. I think they all work together. That's usually why, Phil, when you see really good filmmakers, um, they use the same cinematographer, the same editor, same director, they'll use the same actors, they'll use the same, you know, um, film score as well. And because once you've developed that um, relationship and everybody knows how each other, uh, how each other works, uh, because that's half the battle right there, you know, flowing with people doing a, a, a rigorous creative process is really, really crucial to the, uh, the outcome of the project as well. You can have an excellent story, but without the cohesiveness of everybody working together, knowing how to work with each other, it can fall apart as great as a story it is. Excellent. Excellent. I want I want you to think about still at 30,000 feet, but we're, we're starting to descend a little bit and think about 2020. Let me ask you this before I ask you this other question, and you can briefly just kind of share um, with everything that we've seen. How are you doing? Not so much as a filmmaker, as a as a human being, as a citizen, as a black man. As a Christian, how are you doing with everything that you've seen so far in 2020? How much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I was really, you know, to be 100% honest with you, I was really hoping the election would have made me feel better about what I was seeing all year long. 
But what the election did was validate and reinforce what we were seeing all year long. And the shenanigans that are happening now and, you know, these militia groups and I mean, they really hate groups. You know, let's just call it what it is. Call it what it is. It is. It's pretty frustrating, you know, as an African-American man, um, be honest with you, I'm coping, but I'm still upset. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very upset at this lie America continues to tell me. Um, I, I look at the flag and it means something bad to me. It, I'm not trying to sound, you know, like I'm not patriotic, like I don't love my country. But those stars and stripes have been a have, I mean, we already knew that they've been a lie, you know, in terms of what the what the flag represents or what it's supposed to represent. Um, but it's a one sided story in the sense that, you know, one group of people look at it and they have a sense of pride. But another group of people can look at it and feel like. What's the words I want to use here? feel like they've been lied to, like they've been cheated and like they've been, um, gosh, that those words aren't, they don't quite hit the way that my heart feels, Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and where I live, you know, I, I live in kind of a Trump County. I'll, I'll just say that. So there's a lot of flags flying, you know, on cars and, and flags in, in front of people's houses and, you know, the support of a certain administration of the current administration is really honestly to me as as a a fellow american to them an indictment on my citizenship on um the freedom and the democracy that they say that they care and they uphold i I think it's it's quite obvious especially you know the, the the young the young lady that i foster my daughter she is entering into college and she's seeing firsthand the true America, right? She's seeing the true colors of America. And so as a father, I'm like ready to send her to college next year, knowing where she's going out to, because I feel like this beast has just woken up, you know, this sleeping bear that I'm just going to say that I think president Trump has woke up, right? He, he poked this bear and and this monster just came out of the cave. And, ah, it's got so much to say. But, and so, you know, I, I'm, as a Christian man, then it's a whole nother lane. I look at my evangelical brothers and sisters and I'm pretty disappointed. Mm. Um, I'm pretty disappointed with the way that they've responded and how they've made it they made the the point of evangel, uh, evangelism into a political push. But I know the truth, man. It's always been about that. You know, it's always been about pushing and pushing a mindset. Um, but I thought we were, I guess I feel like I thought we were better than that. It's like a friend that you had, or at least you thought somebody you thought you were cool with. And then a situation happens and you see they don't really have your back. They don't really they don't really care 
um, at least not the way that they said that they do. And so it's just so much hypocrisy. People want to, you know, people want to vote a certain way, but they don't want to live the way that they present themselves. I, I mean, so I'm, I'm kind of, if you, if you couldn't tell by my answer, I'm kind of all over the place, still unpacking all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Really, yeah. Um, because I'm not 21 years old and I can't respond a certain way. I'm, I have responsibilities. Um, and I have a platform that I ha- I'm intending to lead people, especially young men, um, into the right direction, having the right mentality. And so the response, even though the response warrants, in my opinion, on one side, it, it warrants a similar, a, a similar offense in order for it to, you know, in order for people to wake up because gosh, I feel like the, the, the work of men like Dr. King, Medgar Evers, you know, and, and a plethora of others has just kind of been torn down in, in one generation in, in, I don't even say one generation in one term of presidency. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I've been wrestling with this, I think me and you may have talked a little bit about this before. I've been wrestling with this, especially with the church, the church's response, lack of um, voice in in this in this conversation, just kind of sitting idly by like everything's okay. And then when you look at the right. breakdown of who supported who in the election, um, we, we know where those votes came from. I think the evangelical church supported Trump by about 80%. And so I talked in a previous episode about how the bar is so low when it comes to when it comes to what we should expect out of a leader. You know. Right. And this is why I say racial reconciliation is not the answer is the wrong word, reconciliation. Just like you use the example of, it's like you have a friend that you thought were friends, you thought you were cool until something happened and you realize, man, we weren't really friends. And that's why right. racial solidarity, this idea of mutual obligation is more appropriate than just reconciliation because reconciliation really can be watered down to just simply mean we're cool, right? You and I, we're good, right? cool but that thing outside of our relationship that other entity whether it be a person or an institution or social structures laws policies what have you if it's coming at me or it's affecting me and not you and you can avoid it and just kind of step off to the side and let me take these hits on my own then are we really friends so i don't think you can have reconciliation without solidarity Without right. you being willing to take the hits with me, you being willing to feel it with me, stand with me, um, and that's what I think the church needs to 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 learn. The, and I, when I say the yeah. church, I'm specifically talking about evangelical church. If I were to get even more specific, white evangelical, even though there are people of color who have embraced that, I want to call it ideology rather than theology. Absolutely. You know as well. So my, my, my question for you is, what opportunities do you see as a filmmaker coming out of 2020? If you had to, 
use your skills to be or to or as part of your platform what opportunities do you see as a filmmaker to help be a part of healing or or, or telling more of the story what, what opportunities do you see well one thing that has been an asset to um storytelling is social media right um, the ability for anybody on the street to pick one of these things up right and record something that happened and you know such as the video about Aubrey, um, george floyd several other things i mean the, the, the riots and, and just the police brutality that we saw this year it has opened up quite clearly the reality, not just to other Americans, right? To the whole world. We just, you know, we just pretty much aired out our dirty laundry um, to the rest of the world. A lot of countries looked at us as, you know, kind of like a beacon of hope. Um, I remember hearing, I remember hearing the mayor of London on CNN saying that America doesn't quite realize that, you know, when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold and America is very much so like a, you know, in terms of uh, countries that, you know, believe in, in its foundations have to do with equality and freedom and justice and all of that, that uh, America is supposed to be that thing. The opportunity that I think that filmmakers have, and especially myself, is the ability to tell raw, unadulterated truth in film. Um, whereas if you look back 10, 15 years ago, you know, stories were watered down. They didn't really show the ugliness of it. But the fact that the whole world watched um, a man kneel on another man's neck till he died. And a group of men protecting that process, um, that did something to people's minds, right? It's like when you're a kid and, and you, I remember the first time I saw a dog get hit by a car, right? And I had a dog as a kid and I watched this dog die. Like the first time you watch something die, it does something to your psyche, right? You don't fully understand death until you see it, you know? And then as you get older and I started to see, you know, um, actual people die. I saw, I saw people die in car accidents. I saw people die um, from, you know, gunshots. I've, I've seen these things happen and it made it surreal to me, the, the depth of that incident. And so I think with filmmaking now, you can be as honest and direct and even as a Christian filmmaker, um, because God sees this ugliness, right? You know, in the church, we don't really like to talk about the ugliness, right? We can just say, oh yeah, you know, brother so-and-so had an issue with pornography or sister so-and-so had an issue with drug abuse. And we don't want to go into the depth of it. You know what I mean? We don't want to go into her being in the drug house and her being strung out, you know, that, that and, how, and what it did to her mind and her response to it and how she just, you know, the demonic was influencing her. I'm not trying to go too far into that, but I'm just saying like, you know, to the man who, who would always struggle with, and like I said a moment ago, like with pornography, like, you know, just the, the, the grotesque thoughts that, that he went into. The church doesn't like to talk about it. But 
the fact of the matter is the Lord is in that with that person. Yep. And he pulls them out of that. And so I think when you show the truth about the ugliness of that to the people who are out there struggling with it, they not only understand it, um, but it gives them hope to come out of it, to see that what that process is really like. Like, you know, for instance, one of the things that um, I'm really focusing on in one of the, 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 um, the screen screenplays that I'm writing is mental health. Mental health is a huge problem in America right now a huge problem and we see it every day right you can't drive through the the inner city of la and not see on one in one area or the other whether you're in downtown whether you're on the west side whether you will see just a degradation of the mental well-being of people yeah and everybody is looking away and so um showing the depth of mental health in a medium such as film and television will make society aware because when they see it in their living room and they can get, they can, they can understand the depth of what a person is going through when they see it out on the street, five, 10 minutes from their house or around the corner from their job, it hits a little different. You know what I mean? It, it, it just doesn't, you just don't look at that person as the crazy, the crazy man talking to himself, digging in the trash on you know at the bus stop when a film allows you to see how a person got there and i think you you say this often a person's why you know why a person is the way that they are how did that person get there if you don't understand the why then you can never have the compassion for them you can then as a citizen never vote for things that would be helpful to them right you can never you know push push your um your politicians and your in the in the legislation that would be necessary in order to care for people in that regard. So I want to use this this generation or, or what this generation has been exposed to to allow people to be fed up with seeing it because it's different when it's when you see it in the comfort of your own home, it convicts you. You know what I mean? Out and yeah. about, you can turn your head, and that's what a lot of people have been doing. But, you know, as, as we continue to um, bombard, bombard our society with the truth of what is happening, not in a, because here's the danger, not in a commercial way, right? Because um, you know how the beast, will, the beast that is Hollywood will take something that is truthful, commercialize it, and desensitize people to it, making the situation worse than it was before. Because now... It's just a commercial thing, right? It doesn't really carry the weight or the prophetic nature, as you were talking about, to change the, the hearts of a generation. So my company and, and everything that we do um, as we work on projects is to make meaningful content that will affect the culture in a positive way, that would allow people to have more compassion, that would see the principles and the values and the heart of the father in these mediums of, of creativity. That's what that's what we're about. Wow. Let's pause here for a moment for a quick PSA and we'll come back and continue this conversation on the other side. You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. The following is a trailer to the documentary short film 
open wounds. I have a story to tell, a story of pain, of loss, of gain, of cost. The story of trauma, the drama of birth and new birth, lost and found self-worth. Before Emmett Till, there was Nate Allen, my grandfather. His body found face down, floating in the Sampit River, at the hands of a racist pulling a rifle's trigger. In this story, I gave racism a name. I call him Cain, since he rendered my grandfather unable to speak the truth about what happened on that river in the low country, home of the Gullah-speaking Geechees that raised me. But the voice of his blood cries out from the earth. And the question is, who's listening? You can view Open Wounds right now at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. You, you got a call last January, not this past, January of 2019, from me when I was in Sundance. And I don't even know how I sounded. I just knew I had to call somebody. Your name, your face popped in my head. I was like, L. I got to call L. And so I called you and told you about my, my, my family's story, my grandfather's story. And I was inspired while I was at Sundance as a part of this uh, forum called Windrider. And in that forum, I was inspired. Man, I got to tell this story. I had never thought about telling the story in this medium. I thought about writing the book, doing some spoken word, but never telling the story in this medium. When you got the call from me about open wounds and my grandfather's death, murder, 1953, and they put death on his death certificate, they put accidental drowning. My family never got justice. When I called you and told you about that story and said, man, what do you think, man? I, I want to tell this story. Tell us a little bit about what, 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 how are you processing that? What went through your mind when you heard, when you heard that? Well, <clears throat> When I first heard that, you know, a, a big part of justice is allowing the truth to be told. You know, um, offenses can happen and people can settle out of court, right? And the truth will never come out. That's not justice, right? Um, true justice is when the truth of the matter is actually exposed and people see who did what and, and what the ramifications of their actions um, were and, and the hurt that it caused. The story was um, when you told me about that particular story, just in that little bit of time, it, it touched my heart, you know, and I listen to stories all day long. Um, all just, just every day I'm, I'm either reading something online, whether it's in a book or, or whatever, and just um, the enthusiasm that you, you had when you called me uh, from Sundance, 
And as you started to unpack it, I knew it was very much so um, something that had tremendous value to not just you as um, a black man, but to you as a son and a grandson, you know? And as we, we talked more about the, the, the story and, and things started to unfold more, you know, as we met when you got back, and I said, dude, there's, there's no way we not, we don't tell this story. There's no way, there's no way we don't let the truth about this get out because even still when we were talking about it, I felt like even still to this day in my mind, I felt like what happened to your grandfather, he was still crying out for it to be told, you know, the truth about it to be told. And so, you know, much, much like many events that took place, you know, in the South decades and, you know, still to this day, I, I feel like when you get a when you hear the truth about something like that, it's your responsibility to tell it, you know, um, and as a filmmaker who, as I said before, has a has a passion for telling the truth um, about a matter in a creative way to affect culture. I saw it as an opportunity, not for me, um, and not, not necessarily for you, but an opportunity for the truth to change and affect people um, at a level to which um, it invades their comfort. Mm. You know what I mean? And because a lot of these stories they make life uncomfortable for the victims. But when you tell the truth about this, for people to hear it, it makes them uncomfortable because it bids you to respond to that truth. Yeah. It compels you to respond to the reality of a situation or something that happened. And so as a filmmaker, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, you're a basketball player, you know, it's, it's like that lob, you know, it's a two on one break. You know, uh, the opportunity is there and you, you just got to dunk that thing. And I think, um, you know, not just because we did it, but I think we dunked that thing, man. And um, and I see it as I see this story as something that God uses to confront the callousness of a generation. Mm, I love that. I just want to sit on that for a minute, man. Film is something that God uses to confront the callousness of a generation. That's good. You can have that one. That's free. I'm, I'm, I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> no, that's good, man. That's good. Um, talk about the process of making this particular film. The timeline because we had a tight timeline and I know you, it, you wanted to throw some stones, some, you wanted to throw some tomatoes at me a couple of times because we had this tight timeline. <laughs> uh, yeah. But also being in Georgetown, South Carolina, yeah. seeing the footage and the images that you sat through day after day, hearing the interviews. Talk yeah. about that whole process, the timeline, um, or maybe starting with being in Georgetown. How was that for you? 
So um, the timeline, like much independent documentaries or just independent films, you know, I didn't necessarily think anything different. I mean, we had, you know, we had such a tight schedule because of budgeting. But when you're when you're running a, a project like that independent, you don't have much time, right? Because time is money, you know? And so um, the timeline, actually, I felt like the timeline helped to get the best out of us because we understood we didn't have moments to waste. We didn't have time to waste. And so, you know, you bring up Georgetown, we get there, you know, primarily living my, the majority of my life on the West Coast. Um, pretty, oh, let me correct, all life on the West Coast, just have visited the East Coast and, and back south and down south, you know, a, a few times going there and putting what was, you know, the story that was told and, and putting me smack in the middle of, because even though a lot has changed from the time that your grandfather Nate had passed, a lot hadn't changed. So being in Georgetown, even though there was, there was kind of a cordialness, especially when we were downtown, there was kind of a cordialness there, um, but the blood and the things in which took place in that place, I still felt. Mm. It was a stain. I mean, it it's like blood on a white garment, right? Even though you wash it, the residue of it is still there. And so I still felt it. And, and, and you know, from a spiritual perspective, you walk into an environment that you're not accustomed to you're sensitive to it because it's new, it, it, but the feeling is new, right? You're from there. So you're just kind of like, this is what it's like, this is what it is. But for what I was feeling, um, the gazes that I was receiving, um, it was an experience that really made it, even from, you know, not just for myself, but also, you know, for Juan, when he accompanied us, that made it more real, that made the story more real. And, and as we visited the sites and we had the interviews and, you know, we're, we're, we're at the grave site and we're just taking in the environment and seeing the difference between one side of town, the other side of town, and, and hearing all of these things, you feel a, an overwhelming sense of responsibility to do, not only to to do the film in excellence, but you start to, and, and I don't, I don't think Juan can speak for this, but you know, for me as an African-American man, um, when we're in Bethel, man, you know, as a believer and as an African-American man, um, I felt the sense of like, I owe it to them. I owe doing this thing right to them. And so, you know, you mentioned, you know, the editing process and, and, and seeing these images and, and hearing these stories, you know, as an editor, you hear the same, you hear the same things over and over. No, you go back and you cut it. Oh no, you want to extend this. And, and, and you just completely, I had to take a break, honestly. Um, because when that's constantly going on in your mind, um, in, in my being, right, from a spiritual, from a spiritual perspective, from my at, at the level, the level of my soul, right? Um, my father's. I'm a 
I'm a, an extension of my father's, right? And so I can, I, I felt what they experienced, you know? And, and I think that's a big part of the disconnect with, with like other nationalities that when they see these images, they're like, oh, that's bad. And they just turn around and go about their life. But it's, it hits a little different for us because it's in us. Like we, we came from it. And so even though we didn't experience it, it touches us at not just a, a spiritual level, but I mean, even at a cellular level, um, quite honestly. And that's one of the things that Open Wounds um, unpacks a bit. But so, I, bro, I had to I had to take a break uh, because it, I would close my eyes, man. Like I would edit for like three, four hours straight go to bed, close my eyes, and I'm still seeing the images. It's like you look into the sun for longer than what you should, and you close your eyes and you still see it there, right? Um, it, it has an effect that burns into your mind. Um, and that touches you in a way that, like I said, it bids you to respond to it. You cannot look at people dying like that and it not affect you if if you don't if you if you're not affected by it i mean there's a there's a desensitizing that has taken place in you that will be to the detriment of your ability to love to have compassion to care for people and that will rob you of the humanity that that god has instilled in all of us as you know image bearers um, you won't be able to separate the difference between those made in the image of God, you know, and, and honor them as such. So it, it was tough, honestly. Well, man, you 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 captured the essence of the story, the city. You weren't in Georgetown for the uh, screening, the first screening a year ago, but. There was a standing, I was having a baby. Yeah, you were having a baby. <laughs> there was a standing ovation. Partly, I would imagine they're they're proud of their, their son. I'm a son of the city, son of the town. But the ovation was for the film. Like yeah. it was so well done. It told the story. If my grandmother was here, and people people ask me this question, if my grandmother was here, she would be proud. She'd be proud of you too. She would say, thank you, son. Thank you, did a great job. Thank you, son. Um, so I, I appreciate what you put into the film. That doesn't, please don't let that go um, unnoticed or not unnoticed, but don't think that it's not, it, that it's gone unnoticed is what I should say. Yeah. Um, I appreciate what you've put into the film because it shows, it shows. Yeah. Um, last question. What do you like to, what would you like to see from your industry, from Hollywood moving forward, especially as it relates to telling black stories? One, do you think it's done well, like Hollywood gets it? Or there, there still needs to be more, more change, people in more 
people in positions, decision-making positions, more directors, more acting, more writers. What would you like to see moving forward, both from Hollywood and from you, in the context of the whole film industry? First, what would you like to see more out of Hollywood? And then what's L. Michael Lee's role moving forward? What would you like to see more of it in yourself? Well, well I, I honestly, instead of, you know, of course, you know, I'd like to see more diverse. I, I like to see more minorities writing screenplays, um, producing, directing. But I'd like to see more than that, minorities at the executive level at these large studios because they determine what project is picked up and what project isn't. Um, I don't think that America and I don't think that our industry is void of creative, brilliantly creative minorities. I don't think that there is, um, you know, just just a, a lack of black and brown people who can tell stories. I think that there is a lack of white executives that allow their stories to be told that would give them that platform to tell those stories. Um, I think that the imagery that we've seen in Hollywood has been intentionally by design whitewashed. Um, because you know, whiteness is synonymous with right and, and good and anything that is positive in terms of what this message that they've been trying to uh, perpetuate. And so I'd like to see primarily more CEOs, more executives, more presidents, more vice presidents in Hollywood that have melanin in their variations of melanin in their skins. And this, that, that's not just limited to Hispanic, Mexican, you know, African-American. I, I like to see American, Native Americans. I like to see um, Eastern Indians. I like to also see um, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, like, because that is the makeup of America. And, you know, films like um, Crazy Rich Asians, Black Panther, and a myriad of others that we've started to see in the last few years, three to five years, they have been more impactful than a lot of, a lot of, I mean, you talk, you're talking about comic books, right? Like it, a comic book is, is a comic book. Like, you know, it's, it's surface level, but it means so much more because it showed, obviously, someone in dark skin in a heroic light. How long has film making been a thing? And we are just now seeing a dark skin. I mean, don't get me wrong because Will Smith played a lot of heroic roles, but they weren't heroic roles that showed black excellence. You know, he was the cop. Um, he wasn't the leader of a nation of integral, dignified, um, dark-skinned people with a rich culture, um, with intelligence. You know, that's not something that the world was used to seeing. 
And then, so anyway, I, I'd like to see, you know, films continue in in that lane. Um, I, like I said, I have children. My son, it it's a little bit different, you know, his experience than mine. You know, I loved He-Man, Transformers, loved, you know, all of the comic book stuff when I was a kid. Never saw anybody like me. Never saw anybody that spoke like me, walk like me, talk like me. My son is having a different experience. And I wonder what that will do for his generation, you know. Now, in terms of your second question, what do I want to do? Um, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get up and do my thing. Uh, I hear you. So um, I think, so the, a couple of the projects that I have slated for 2021, and one is a documentary called Amen, and it aims unapologetically, like we were talking about earlier, at the evangelical church. Um, not going to go into detail, but that's that's a documentary that I'm working on. And then I have a working title that is a feature. Um, and we're, we're probably about 80% done with the screenplay. We already have some casting done. Um, but it is about, um, I won't call it a, post a post-apocalyptic society, but a post-collapsed society where just imagine what 2020 has been from a social um, standpoint and, and kind of a social economical standpoint, just the, you know, the, the, the degradation of resources and just the loss of morality and, and love within people. And you have this, this unlikely uh, character who didn't have a clean past now having to put on um, the persona that he's always supposed to have and wasn't a great husband, wasn't a great father, having lost his family, now having to be a great husband and a great leader that he should have always been. Um, but throw that smack in the middle of the chaos of a broken society. That's, that's the working title that I'm working on. So what I'd like to be able to do is to get these films. Um, and honestly, you know, I tell my team, man, we're swinging for the fences. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of stick a toe in the in the pool, if you will. I want us to go all out in terms of um, putting it right in your face um, and doing it in such a way that is both engaging um, but convicting. I don't want you to just sit and watch a Michael Lee product, you know, film or device production, and and not consider your own mentality and consider your own heart, right? I want you to see in the characters um, a bit of yourself and the wrong in yourself so that you could you could see the, the, the error in your ways, you know? And so it's, man, the psychology behind storytelling is, is pretty amazing these days because to leverage the truth of what's going on and throwing it into, um, you know, compartmentalizing it in, into an, a form of entertainment, um, you have to be masterful about how you express that so that it doesn't come off overboard, but it also doesn't come off as cookie cutter. But it's able to um, reach people down to their morals, um, down to their systems of belief. And so that's, 
that's where we are, man. And that that's where I want to, that's the kind of content that I want to produce that would really challenge people and bid them to change. And I want to step in and be a for, you know, be one of the, the upfront leaders. In it. And I know I might get a lot of flack and I get a lot of pushback for it because, um, you know, you, if you're, if you're not, if you're not having that level of opposition, you're not really doing anything. And so um, I think a great, a great gauge to how effective your work is, is the opposition you face um, when it's presented to the rest of the world. So. Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, man, I, I appreciate your insight, your wisdom, your time. I appreciate your, your work on open wounds I thank you for um, for being that voice in film, for wanting to reach people at the moral, the, lo the level of, of morals, morality, to influence in that way, and to allow your faith to, to, to lead you, to influence all that you do. You're a great example. I pray blessings over your family, your work. Thank you, sir. Um, stay safe during this time till we get through this, this pandemic and um, continue to do the work. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you. Like I said in the past, thank you very much so for involving me in the project. Um, I love where you're taking it and where, it, where it's going. I mean, you called uh, filmmaking a prophetic thing. And, you know, you and I talk, man, if we would have did this project a year later, you know what I mean? It, it, it wouldn't... I think we did it precisely when God wanted it done. And I'm so thankful to be a part of it uh, because it's a necessary um, story in, in the medium in which it's allowing you, well, I should say the, the avenues in which it's allowing you to go with it. it. It's a joy to see, man. Thank you for involving me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. See you, man. God bless you. Be safe. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care, bro. You can follow L. Michael Lee on Instagram at devised, that's D-I-V-Y-Z-E-D, -E devised. And please do not forget to pre-order your copy of my book, Open Wounds, on Amazon right now. It'll be out February 9th, 2021. I'm confident that you'll be moved, enlightened, and blessed by it. Thank you for listening. And thank you once again for parking with me at the intersections.